Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today we are talking with Drs. Julie Belver and Lisa Dunco about their recent case report accepted for publication in pharmacotherapy titled Delayed Initiation of Remdesivir in a COVID-19 Positive Patient. Dr. Belfer and Dumco are clinical pharmacists at Mercy Health St. Mary's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Belfer is a critical care specialist and Dr. Dumco works primarily in infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship. Thank you both for arranging your schedules to join me today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we we appreciate very much you taking time out of your uh, schedule for this. Let's just begin, and uh, first, um, I was hoping that you would describe your facility. I think our readers would like to know some context about where your patient was uh, treated, for example. And this allows them to compare your results and your experience to their own setting. Absolutely. This is Julie. Our institution is about is a 350-bed community teaching hospital. We are located in the inner city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, so it's definitely an urban setting. We see about 85,000 ED visits every year. We're also a level two trauma center and a comprehensive stroke center. Our ICU specifically is a mixed ICU. We have 32 acuity adaptable beds. And I just want to preface just our hospital in general in these times of the COVID pandemic is Michigan has been gotten a lot of media attention for being the third highest state with the number of, based on the number of cases with COVID. And this is mostly happening in the Detroit area. In West Michigan, we have not seen the surge that the east side of the state has seen. So we're still preparing for that and expect our numbers to rise in the coming weeks. I think what you describe is what most of us have seen in the literature, but you have specific uh, patient experience. So would uh, either of you describe your patient's background and uh, the initial presentation? Yeah, this was a 40-year-old male. His past medical history included anxiety, depression, obesity as BMI was 30.8, and high lipids. He also was, from a social perspective, had a history of five years of vaping. He was had some occupational potential hazard of being a taxi driver in town, so had a lot of contacts with people from many different areas. Through the initial presentation, he, he started out by presenting to his PCP with symptoms of a viral upper respiratory or a viral respiratory infection. He had been improving. And at this time, we were following the CDC recommendations as well as the local and state health recommendations where he originally didn't meet criteria for screening. So as many of us have gone through in the past month or up to eight weeks, these recommendations have changed frequently and sometimes day to day. So he originally presented to his PCP provider and who chose that he was low risk, no need for testing, followed up a couple days later and ended up having a virtual um, visit with his provider, which led to being recommended for COVID screening. Also during this time, our turnaround time on our COVID testing was very lengthy. So that that time is around five days. 
Currently, we're using a. It's, we're in a, it feels like in a much different era. By we have a 45 minute turnaround time on our COVID testing. So much has changed during the course of even his presentation and his hospitalization, but also in the past four to six weeks um, as we've been experiencing COVID in West Michigan. Well, I'm just wondering what were some of your considerations in, in deciding on a, a treatment plan for, for this patient? This is Lisa. Um, so for treatment plan, initially when he finally was admitted to the hospital, so just to echo what Julie was saying, he was tested a few days after his symptom onset and then following the testing actually went home to self-isolate while awaiting test results. And at that time we were waiting on average about five days for test results to come back. So by the time he got to the hospital, he was presenting pretty ill looking um, and we were still waiting for his test results to come back. Um, so he was started on antibiotics directed at community acquired pneumonia pathogens just because we didn't have that COVID PCR test result back at that time. And since he had been ill for over a week and based on his occupation, his wife was also sick at home. Um, there was some concern that maybe he had like a post viral pneumonia or could have an atypical pathogen as well. So he was tested broadly also um, in terms of respiratory cultures and then for atypical pathogens like mycoplasma and Legionella as well. Um, and then on top of that, we tried to do some hydroxychloroquine for him just in terms of an investigational agent while we waited to see what happened in terms of his clinical status. It seems as though your patient had a, a very rapid downhill course in, in the hospital. And wonder when I read your case, uh, if any of the risk factors that uh, he had that have been mentioned already, such as um, obesity, I guess, as an underlying medical condition and a history of, a history of vaping, uh, did these factors play any role in treatment decisions? In terms of him being a candidate for remdesivir um, at the time, no. And actually, most of these risk factors, um, becoming risk factors for severity of COVID illness, have actually only come to light in the last couple of weeks. So when he first presented, we really didn't consider obesity at that point to be a big risk factor for um, patients not doing well or for mortality. But that has come to light since he's been um, hospitalized. So really, while we were writing the case, we were actually seeing a lot of these risk factors come out like male sex and like the obesity history. Um, but in terms of us pursuing remdesivir for this patient, the big thing was that, you know, he was young and otherwise healthy with good renal function, good hepatic function, and he was critically ill requiring mechanical ventilation, but not requiring pressors to maintain his blood pressure. Your history does strike me in, in another way in that uh, there seems to be an unfortunate impression that it's only elderly patients who are affected by the um, the virus and developing COVID-19, but uh, your patient was just 41 years old, which is, is young. Well, let me um, just ask you another question. Your history with uh, remdesivir is a very interesting story, and I was hoping you could share a little bit more of this experience with listeners um, who have not read your case report about what type of procedures you had to go to to actually obtain this drug. So um, previously to the current state, um, remdesivir was available via a process called compassionate use. Um, and so that's where the manufacturer is basically allowing use when patients meet certain criteria um, to patients for an investigational drug or one that's not approved yet in the United States. There are no treatments currently approved for COVID. Remdesivir, we think, might be a very promising treatment just because of its mechanism of action where it actually targets 
um, the coronavirus itself. Um, and so that's why we were initially excited to that our patient qualified for this treatment. But this process is really not for the light of heart. It's a very um, detailed, kind of cumbersome process. Um, the manufacturer was great to work with, really. Um, so we do hats off to Gilead because they're really trying to get this drug to patients who need it. Um, but because it's an investigational agent, there really is a lot of paperwork that's required and a lot of time that's required to, main, to obtain this medication for patients. It starts with once your patient is finally test results come back after, at that point, five to seven days, um, contacting the manufacturer and, you know, going through the checklist with them to make sure that the patient meets criteria to actually be able to use the medication. And then once the manufacturer, Gilead, would approve you for the medication, then you needed to actually contact the FDA and they would have to approve you and send you what's called an EIND form. And then once you have that form, you actually need to talk to your investigational review board at your institution and there's paperwork that they need to do as well. On top of that, the patient or patient's relative guardian needs to be consented for treatment and the medication needs to be discussed with them as well. And then there's a few other forms that need to be filled out and all of this needs to be returned to the manufacturer. The manufacturer then sends some more forms back to you that need to be returned to the FDA. And then you kind of just wait and to hear from Gilead to see when the drug is actually going to be coming. And something that was interesting for us at the time was that we were approved for this medication right before the compassionate use process actually was suspended because of delays in actually having medication. So the manufacturer listed that there was a critical supply shortage of remdesivir, and that's why they were doing away with the compassionate use program for most patients. Um, they're still offering that for patients who are pregnant or for pediatric patients. Um, so we were actually really concerned that we might not actually even get to use this medication for this patient because we saw that there was this shortage of drug at that time as well. Um, so it did take over seven days for us to obtain this medication for the patient. And so by that time, he had been symptomatic for almost two weeks, which was um, concerning to us. And we had a serious conversation about whether we still wanted to give the medication because for most other viral infections, we know that giving medication earlier is what's correlated to efficacy. So we weren't sure if after two weeks, this would still even be beneficial, but there's really no data to say what to do in that case. Well, your experience makes me wonder, since you've had this experience with the company and obtaining the drug, if uh, you'll be sought out as a center for, for people who are looking to be treated with this drug. Currently, to obtain more medication for remdesivir, you either need to be a site that's enrolled in a clinical trial with Gilead, or they have now an expanded access program, but that also requires sites to be approved by the drug manufacturer. So sites are applying, but Gilead is only approving sites as they have available medication. And also they're trying to keep in mind the areas that are most affected in the country. So right now in Grand Rapids, our need is not as much as say somewhere like in Detroit. Well, we hope with um, your good experience and the results of clinical trials that the promise of this drug will be fulfilled and it'll be more available in the future. But uh, getting back to, to your patient then, uh, just a related question about monitoring parameters. I'm uh, sort of curious, your uh, patient's oxygen saturation, for example, decreased markedly uh, after the uh, day of the admission. Um, among the many laboratory test results that are routinely obtained in ICU and ventilated patients, are there any that that you as clinical pharmacists and members of the healthcare team taking care of this patient pay particular attention to? And 
assessing if the drug therapy uh, plan is working? Um, this is Julie again. With most of our treatment options that we're using are still considered investigational. There's, we're not really following or trending any particular labs to assess drug therapy. We are continuing to follow the patient's clinical course and for focusing quote unquote improvement, we're really using the ventilator settings of support and then as well as oxygen needs um, until the patient is stable for discharge. So nothing specific to drug monitoring, except for of course the monitoring parameters of like QTC, LFTs with hydroxychloroquine. Um, other than that though, nothing specifically for the clinical course. Well, since you, since you mentioned hydroxychloroquine, um, I noted that uh, your patient was given hydroxychloroquine along with azithromycin, uh, and there's been some concern expressed about cardiac conduction problems from this combination. Would you mind commenting a little further for our readership about this issue and if it was a concern with your patient? Yes, this is Lisa again. Um, I will say that there were a couple of small studies that came out actually after this patient had been started on therapy that looked at the hydroxychloroquine plus azithro and the issues with QT prolongation. And when we were doing the case, I was like, oh my gosh, someone's going to see that this guy got both of these and wonder why we did that. But we weren't trying to use them in combination for questionable synergy. We were really using them because we thought the patient could be at risk for an atypical infection in terms of the azithromycin and then hydroxychloroquine for possible COVID. Um, but yeah, that's a huge concern. And anybody who we start on hydroxychloroquine, we really want to see a baseline EKG. And that's something that we will monitor um, for our patients who are started on hydroxychloroquine. And it's been a reason that we've actually not given hydroxychloroquine where we've stopped hydroxychloroquine um, along with LFT monitoring as well. So those are both reasons why we have or have not given that medication to patients. Um, but it's not a combination that we would recommend um, because of those significant safety concerns, unless you really were concerned that the patient might be at risk for atypicals. Um, and even if that's the case, there's other safer options, such as oxycycline could be used for atypical coverage. You wouldn't need azithromycin in that case. What I read in the literature is that some drugs that are, are used in the ICU setting often, uh, critical care patients, um, that the effects in these particular types of patients are, are just unknown. And one of them is the use of steroids. What uh, this brings to mind is um, just sort of a more of a 20,000 foot question. Um, since you're getting a lot of unique experience with COVID-19 patients, Knowing what you know today compared to when this patient was uh, first admitted, is there anything now that you're thinking about changing in your approach to patient care? You know, that's an excellent question. This is Julie again. As we've navigated this journey with COVID patients, we've been changing our approach to patients as evidence is becoming available, just like many other ICU and ID teams across the country and across the world. So we've continued to modify approach and treatment guidelines, and this is a collaboration between the infectious disease teams and the critical care teams and many disciplines within those teams. And with that, we've also been able to maintain a manageable amount of COVID patients so we can approach our patients, um, change the way we're approaching them as that evidence becomes available, and we haven't really felt extremely overwhelmed at this point, um, and we're obviously thankful for that. But overall, I think our approach is generally similar. We have, when we had this patient, the guidelines from SCCM, now the IDSA guidelines are out. These guidelines weren't available to us, but um, we were not using steroids unless the patient, until the point of ARDS. A lot of the ways we approach this patient end up being similar to the way that we are 
treating them now. Our patient was on a continuous infusion of neuromuscular blockers. The only, that's one thing I see that we're changing and we're using more of a um, bolus dosing rather than continuous infusion. And that's more from a conservation perspective. And one thing that we're learning that we're seeing and we're still trying to navigate and figure out how to approach this is when these patients are getting to the point of being able to be extubated, we're seeing they have a lot of encephalopathy and whether that's delirium or agitation, it's not very clear, And but are really brainstorming how to approach these patients when it comes time for extubation. In this case, in this patient, um, he was okay to be extubated by his oxygen in mechanical ventilator settings. Um, unfortunately, was unable to be extubated because of his agitation at the time. So for that reason, and we, to decrease, again, the mechanical ventilation um, duration, we're still working on how to approach that. And I know that's common across the country right now is something we're seeing. There is one thing I'd like to add in regards to our change in approach over the last couple of weeks, and that's actually that we're giving less antibiotics to patients presenting. I think just over time with the last two to three weeks, we've really been becoming more comfortable with how we approach and manage these patients. And just in seeing their clinical courses and how they're presenting, um, it's made our ID team and critical care teams kind of just pull back on antibiotics and say, you know, it's a viral infection. Most of these patients are presenting very similarly critically ill, but we really don't need antibiotics. We're not seeing a lot of co-infections in these patients. And so we're really actually giving less antibiotics upfront to these patients and doing less cultures upfront for these patients as well. There, there's so many questions that people have about the care of these patients and, and also follow-up, which hasn't been discussed a lot. I, I assume that your patient's been out of the hospital now for some time. Do you have any follow-up of whether he has any uh, permanent pulmonary problems or issues um, as a result of having been a COVID-19 patient? He actually was just discharged last week. Um, so these stays for our COVID-19 patients actually tend to be two to three weeks. Um, just from a recovery standpoint, a lot of them are on ventilators for 10 days on average. But yeah, he was discharged and actually doing really well at discharge. That's exactly what I was going to say. He is on no additional oxygen right now. He is um, still getting some therapy in home therapy. But overall, I think it's interesting to hear him talk about this story now. He locally has been in the media, et cetera, for recovering and he talks about how when he went home and he couldn't be with his family as he had to maintain his quarantine. And that's when we're seeing this delirium. We're wondering if it's a combination of the disease state itself, the having to be in the ICU without any family members at the bedside, which we know can help with reorientation and delirium onset. So we're also from an inpatient perspective, working and doing more FaceTiming with patients and their family members. As you can imagine, that's not easy, though. If the patient is inpatient and delirious and then their family is via uh, iPad, that can also add more confusion. So it's not an easy thing that we're facing, but something that we're going to continue to navigate. I'm also curious, have you had to, um, with your ventilated patients, go that final step? Uh, not final, but uh, the step to uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, the ACMO? Yes, we are not a facility that provides ECMO, um, but we do have a neighboring hospital in town that we would transfer our patients if the need were to arise, and we have not gone, needed to do that at this point. Well, um, finally, um, I was hoping that you would just, uh, if you have any additional comments that you would, you would make about working in an interdisciplinary 
uh, team to take care of COVID-19 patients and if there's any advice you have for other critical care services in the country. Yeah, I think we are unique as we're a small community hospital with a mixed ICU. So our team is quite dynamic and we rely on each other as we can have such a wide array of um, reasons for admission on any given day. So we continue to have multidisciplinary rounds um, that includes a nurse, an intensivist, medical and pharmacy residents, a dietitian, social worker, and other nurse leaders, as well as a clinical pharmacist. So we rely on each other. We trust each other because we're small enough to have those relationships developed. And that's amongst the critical care team, but that also includes the infectious disease team. We all work so closely together and really rely on each other to help fill the gaps when we're dealing with for example, a COVID-19 pandemic and something none of us have ever navigated. And we're relying on each other really closely too, just as data is coming out every single day to keep each other informed of, you know, what's coming out, what's good data, what's not great data, and just trying to keep each other apprised of what is new in the literature um, and what we should be bringing forth to our patients to monitor to monitor and modify how we're taking care of these patients every day. I keep asking you one, another question after I say final question, but <laughs> um, can, can you uh, say how young uh, the patients have been that you've treated and if their care requires anything differently or, or if it's less intense than uh, elderly patients? I would say by the time that they're sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, the young patients are just as sick as the elderly patients. We've had some elderly patients that have been really sick, but also some ones that have done actually really well and not needed supplemental oxygen in the hospital. We've had obviously some young patients that have really been extremely sick and on ventilators and also some that have done well. So I'd say by the time they're sick enough to be admitted, their clinical course is pretty similar between the young and the old. Yeah. Like most viruses, it seems to be an organism that doesn't discriminate uh, among people. So I want to thank both of you for participating in our podcast today and remind our uh, listeners that the full case description can be found on the website of Pharmacotherapy. And again, the authors are, complete set of authors are Emily uh, Hilliker, Julie Belfer, Anna Maria Bombici, Hannah Murad, and Lisa Dumko. And the title of the article, the case report, is Delayed Initiation of Remdesivir in a COVID-19 Positive Patient. Thank you again for participating. Thank you. Thank you for having us.